Well, we are nearing the end of this uh, series, The Scarlet Thread, that we've been kind of walking through the last several weeks and answering or looking at some of the answers to the question, why did Jesus have to die? And I want to start this morning with a bit of a challenge. I would challenge someone to come up here and to, without altering uh, this straw in any way, stick it into the fire and not have it burn. Anyone think they could do that without altering the composition of the straw? Stick it in the fire. No one's coming. All right. See if I can start a little fire up here. Okay, it's impossible, right? That's why I have no takers on that. And it can't be done for two reasons. One is the nature of the fire itself, that anything that comes in contact with it is going to be burned. Its very nature, its attributes, its characteristics, it's um, caused the straw to catch fire. Yeah, a spark plus fuel plus oxygen equals fire, right? And fire burns. So we can't just ask the fire would, uh, not to consume the straw. Uh, its very essence rules out that possibility. Then the second reason um, we can't do this is because we can't stick the straw in the fire is the nature of the straw. Uh, straw is fuel, it's combustible, and it can't come into fire, contact with fire without being consumed. So as we think about this question, why did Jesus have to die? And as you read the scriptures, you discover that our situation with God is not unlike um, this illustration here. God is holy, and God is not only holy. We read in the book of Isaiah and Revelation that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, uh, in the Hebrew and in the Greek languages, they they didn't use uh, punctuation. There were no exclamation marks. When they wanted to put an exclamation mark on something, they repeated it. So, When they say God is holy, 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 they mean God is holy. Wow, is he holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And uh, God is very, very holy. Uh, God is perfect in his nature. His character is one of flawless perfection and purity, uh, so much so that he cannot participate in sin. He... um, cannot tolerate wrong. Uh, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, 13, it says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. Now, this is not just a small problem for us. Uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. The reason being... Without holiness, no one can see God. So we have a God whose nature is holy, righteous, and just. And without holiness, we cannot see God. Without holiness, we can never have a relationship with a holy God. And I said at the beginning of the series, we're going to explore questions like, um, why can't God just forgive? Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer lies in this very thing, that God in his nature is holy. 
And he's not only holy, he's righteous and just. He always does what's right. He always does what's just because of who he is. That's his nature. That's who he is. He's righteous, just, and um, he's holy. And because God is just, he can't just turn his back on sin. Uh, Imagine a God who laughs when someone is ruthlessly murdered. Or a God who's ambivalent or disinterested in children being sold into the sex trade. Could anyone say that that God is good if he didn't require some kind of accounting for the evil that's done to others? Would God be worthy of worship if he weren't also just? For God to be holy, righteous, and just, he cannot just slide sin under the table and not set things right at some point. Because of God's nature, his attributes, because of who he is, Sin and wickedness have to be dealt with. And, you know, God could have just seen this problem of a righteous, holy God and a sinful people and just threw in the towel and given up on us, but he didn't do that. And here's why. God is not only holy and just, God is love. God is good. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Because God loves you, he didn't give up on you. He didn't give up on the world. He has made a way for unholy, straw-like people to become holy. And that's the focus of today's message. Um, This week's topic is purification or purity. How does God make unholy people pure, holy, and righteous so they can have a relationship with a holy, just, and righteous God? And that's the question we're answering today. So let's look at the definition of purification. If you want to get your blue books out. Purification is to rid of an unwanted element, to remove contaminants from, to make ceremonially clean. Is there anybody here that would like to get rid of some unwanted elements in your life? I'm not talking about people either. I'm talking about habits, attitudes, uh, um, addictions, things that are hurting your relationship with other people. Is there anyone that would like to be less toxic, uh, who would like to gossip less, be slower to anger, less full of pride, less controlling? Is there anyone who would like to have a pure heart, who would know that if God were to look at them, that he would be able to say, I find no fault in her. I find no fault in her. I find no fault in him. We all long to hear that. And God wants those things for us as well. So we're going to look at some scripture today and discover how God accomplished this through the death of his son Jesus. If you want to get out a Bible, we're going to be right there in Romans 3 for a while today. So um, I won't be skipping around on you and be able, easy to uh, to say. Um, we're chapter 3 of Romans. Look at this problem. Uh, we all want to hear, I find no fault in him, I find no fault in her. But we see in Scripture that none of us is without fault. So we're going to kind of lay the groundwork for the problem here. Uh, as we look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, where we read, There is no one righteous... Not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That was written in the Old Testament and quoted here. So if you think that you're the only one that's made a mess of things, uh, that needs forgiveness, uh, not so. In fact, in verse 23, uh, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. And God's very nature requires some sort of accounting, some sort of satisfaction or payment for sin. Uh, in Romans 6.23, we discover that the wages or the payment for sin is uh, death. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Doesn't look good. <laughs> so how does a loving God, who wants to have a relationship with his children, overcome these obstacles? Uh, his holy, just, and righteous nature requires justice, but he longs for restoration, he longs for reconciliation, restoration. He longs to see his children have pure hearts and clean consciences to be free of the power and the stain of sin. Well, the answer is found right here in chapter 3. Uh, and I'd invite you, if you haven't already turned, to look with me at verse 21 now. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So this new righteousness, uh, before Jesus came and died on the cross, the only way to be made righteous uh, was to keep the law perfectly. God had given the Ten Commandments. He gave several uh, other laws in the, New T in the Old Testament, and for his people to remain uh, holy, they had to keep the law perfectly. We talked last week about atonement and how once a year all their sins would be put on the goat and the goat would take their sins away, and for a brief time at least they could be free of the shame and guilt of their sin. Uh, and then there were other purification um, sacrifices that could be made away, made. But then Jesus came, and through his death, a righteousness that didn't involve keeping the law became available. Uh, look with me at verses 22 through 24. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So this new righteousness is given to us. It uh, can't be earned. It's, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's received by faith. And in it, Jesus redeems us. We talked about redemption. That he sets us free from the slavery to sin, so that we can be righteous in his sight. And this is a um, righteousness that's available to all. But why didn't God choose to make us righteous in some other way? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, look at verses, uh, the next few verses, starting in verse 25. 
says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So for a time, God left sin unpunished, but because of his justice, there had to be some kind of satisfaction, some accounting for sin, and he dealt with it by presenting Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, we talked about atonement last week, and um, Paul says that God did this to demonstrate his justice. Now, that word atonement is sometimes also translated propitiation. And you might want to write that one down. Uh, this is another one of those words that we don't use frequently, right? Or never. <laughs> and rather than me having tried to explain it or define it, we're going to watch a video by Josh McDowell uh, in which he tells a story that illustrates what propitiation is. So let's watch the video together. The work in the cross manward is redemption. The work in the cross Godward is propitiation, or I like to call it satisfaction. But what does that really mean? Let me try to illustrate it for you. This happened a number of years ago, and I read in a newspaper account in Los Angeles, California, just north of L.A., there's a stretch of highway that goes through a county where they're very strict on speeding, and the little, the little village there makes a lot of money on it. And this young lady, and I would estimate she was probably about maybe 18, 19 years old, was picked up for speeding. Well, in that segment of that highway there, when you're picked up for speeding, you're not ticketed. You are ticketed and taken right to the court 24-7. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the court is in session. And so she was taken to the court. She sat in the court for a while, and when it was her turn, her name was called, she went and stood before the judge. The judge read off the citation, said, guilty or not guilty? Well, she was caught, as we say in English, red-handed. And so she said, guilty. And the judge brought down the gavel and said, I find you guilty. And I'm not sure accurately here of what took place, but it was either like $100 fine or one day in jail or so many hours in jail. And he brought the gavel down. But then an amazing thing happened, probably never happened, maybe one or two other times in the history of American courts. The judge stood up, took off his judicial robe, laid it over the back of the chair, walked down around the front, stood next to the young lady, took out his billfold and paid the fine. The whole court was stunned. What was the explanation of that? The explanation was this. The judge was her father. And now here's the situation. Her father loved his daughter, probably more than anyone else in the world. But he was a just judge. Think of that, a just judge. And therefore, he couldn't say, because I love you so much, I know you didn't mean to do it, you're forgiven this time. What would everybody in the court yell out? I would have yelled out, I want justice. So no matter how much he loved her, because he was a just judge, he had to fine her $100 or a day in jail. But he loved her so much he was willing to set aside his judicial robes and come back down and stand next to her as her father instead of seated before as her judge. And he took the penalty upon himself. So no one could say, I want justice. The law, the requirements of the law was met. You might say, 
that you and I were brought before God. And he brought down and says, guilty or not guilty? He said, guilty, I am a sinner. And brought down the gavel, I find you, the wages of sin is death. But God loved us so much, you might say, he stood up, took off his royal robes, and he set him across the back of the chair and came down the form of his sin, Christ Jesus. And instead of standing before us as our judge, he stood next to us as our Savior. And he took the penalty upon himself. He took the holy, just, righteous wrath of God upon himself. And when Jesus said, it is finished, all the requirements of the law and the nature of God was satisfied and has set him free to deal with us in love. That is probably one of the best illustrations I've seen of what it means to be propitiated or Christ paying the price to satisfy the holy, just, righteous nature of God. Said that so clearly, didn't he? God is holy and just, but he's also loving and good. And he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He satisfied the holy, righteous, and just requirements of God's nature, and he opened the door for God's loving kindness and grace to be shown to us. And this is so important to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, That was God dying for us. Let's go back to uh, Romans chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 25 again, but then go on to um, verse 26. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, or propitiation, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, He did this to demonstrate his justice because of his forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now look at verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So God is not only just, bringing judgment, he took on flesh and went to the cross for us. He is both just and the one who justifies, the one who takes off his robe and steps in and takes our place, paying the penalty for sin and making us just as if we never sinned. Uh, That's what justification means, justified, just as if I never sinned. And he gives us pure hearts and makes us holy. You know, I've been saying each week that God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Only God could save us. Only God has enough righteousness in the righteousness bank to redeem us. <coughs> and, you know, we started this series talking about worldviews. And you're, I think I've talked about it every week. So uh, a little review here. Your worldview answers three basic questions. The first question is, Okay, second, no. (laughs) How did we get here, right? How did the world and everything get here? Every belief system, every religion answers that question. How did the world get here? The second question is, what's gone wrong? Good, all right. 
What's gone wrong with the world? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? And then the third question, how do you fix it? How does all of this get, get fixed? Those, those are the three questions. And, you know, we talked about a variety of worldviews the first week. We talked about pantheism. We talked about Hinduism. We talked about Scientology. And those worldviews all have a different understanding of who God is. There are also belief systems that have a different view of who Jesus is than what was believed by the early church and taught in the Christian creeds of the early church. So I want to take a minute and talk to you about Jesus' divinity and a couple of the heresies that were rejected in early church history, uh, but that are being taught today. You'll run into these in different, uh, from different sects. So um, this is the seminary part today, so get out your blue books again. But the first is Arianism. Um, and this belief goes all the way back to the 4th century and a guy named Arius, who believed that Jesus was a created being, that there was a time when he didn't exist, that before anything else was created, God created Jesus Christ. So he wasn't eternal. Uh, there was a, uh, there, he even wrote a little song that was sang on the docks and stuff, that uh, when there was once when he was not. And that was his teaching, that Jesus was the Son of God, but... Um, had, was a created lesser God. So he wasn't actually God. And this is the view that's taught by the Jehovah's Witnesses today. So if they come to your door, uh, give you a pamphlet, if you read it closely, this is what they're saying, that Jesus is not God. He is the Son of God, but he is not equal with God. There was a time when he was created. He was the first created being, but he's not God. So obviously they also do not believe in the Trinity, right? Because if you take Jesus out of the equation, you don't have two. Three, you've got two, so, um, so they don't believe in the Trinity. All right, then another view of Jesus' divinity is called adoptionism. And uh, many Unitarians hold this view. They believe that Jesus is God's son, that he, that he is God, but he was not originally God's son. God adopted Jesus, and there's, they have different uh, views of this, too, at what time he was adopted. Some say he was adopted when he was baptized by uh, John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Others say he was adopted at his resurrection. Others say he was adopted as, at his ascension. But um, that all of it comes down to that Jesus was not eternally God. He became God by adoption. Now, uh, we don't have time today or in the series to go through all the, the different theories and beliefs, but you can look them up online. But it's important to know that all of these views were debated uh, in the early church and declared heresies by the early church. And if you look in the back of your hymnal, You'll find several creeds there. Those are the creeds of the church. Those were written at that time. They came out of these debates. And the church wrote these creeds to clarify who Jesus is and who God is. And the Christian worldview is grounded in the belief that all that's gone wrong gets fixed through Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God, 
who is himself God, who came and took on flesh, dwelled among us, lived a sinless, perfect life, and then went to the cross to die for us. And today's topic, um, the things that we've been talking about today, God's holy, just, righteous nature, and this uh, doctrine of propitiation are some of the strongest arguments that you have, that we have, for the belief that Jesus is God, um, that he had to be God in order to save us. And um, that's the place that I want to land the message today is to talk about the requirements and the nature of a holy, just, and loving God. God can only be good if he himself came around the bench and paid the penalty for sin. And I have an illustration for this that I thought of as I was working on this. Um, Forrest and I adopted a daughter from Brazil. She was 13 at the time. Well, she was 12 when we started the process, and it was a year-long process. She was 13 by the time we were able to bring her here. We had uh, two children of our own who were 12 and 13 as well. And as part of the adoption process, there's a, like a probation period. For, I think it was uh, a couple of years where every three months we had to send pictures of her, you know, showing that she was happy, that she was healthy, you know, playing, doing things, so that they, they knew she was okay. Well, about a year after she had come to live with us, we got a letter from the Brazilian government requiring us to take her to a doctor, have her examined, and they needed uh, the physical that they had sent us filled out, and notarized by a doctor and sent back, giving evidence and proof that she was healthy and that she had all of her internal organs. Uh, (laughs) There was a rumor going around Brazil that Americans were coming down there, adopting their children, taking them back to the United States um, to use their organs uh, for their own children, like, children who maybe have a kidney disease or something. They'd go adopt a child, bring them back, and then take the kidney from the child for for their own child. So there were these kind of rumors going around. And because we had children of our own, we were on their list of people who had to prove that our um, adopted child had all of her organs. (laughs) And, uh, you know... When we hear something like that, we all understand how incredibly wrong and cruel um, it would be to adopt someone and then use them to save the life of your own child. You, you could not say that anyone who would do such a thing to a child was good. Uh, it, would not be, it would be unrighteous, it would be unjust, it would be unloving to do such a thing. So can we say that God is righteous or just? if he creates a lesser being or adopts a son to send him to the cross to die. God can only be just and good if he himself pays the penalty to set us free. Grace can only be grace if God himself takes on flesh and comes and dies in our place. The good parent would be the parent who gives their own organs, right? Gives their own life for their child. That's the good and loving parent. And that's what we're told in Scripture that Jesus did for us. Jesus died to take away sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we could have access to a holy God. 
Jesus came and he offers us this opportunity to be transformed from holy, straw-like people who cannot be good enough on our own to be in the presence of God who is holy and righteous. And he transforms us into forgiven, purified people who he can pour his spirit into and his love into. And I want to close today with two assurances that are ours because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The first is that we can know that God loves us beyond any shadow of a doubt. God loves, loves, loves you. And if you came in here today burdened down or hurting by something, God knows about it. God cares. He died for you and so that you could know that he loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. He, he hasn't left you. He would never do that. He's shown that by going all the way to the cross for you, dying for you. So you can know that he loves you and he cares for you. And then the second assurance is this, that we can be forgiven and have a pure heart and a new life. Jesus died so that we could meet those requirements, that we could be holy. He says, without holiness, you can't see God. But he died so that we could be made holy and see God. And Jesus' death is only part of that equation. Uh, he's made a way for us to have fellowship with God. But for his sacrifice to make any difference in our life, we have to accept what he's done for us. And our memory verse today comes from 1 John 1, nine. So let's read it together. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Because of Jesus' death for us, God is now just in forgiving us. Uh, he couldn't be wholly just and righteous and just forgive sin without some sort of accounting for sin. But now the wages for sin have been paid, and we can be cleansed and forgiven for all of our past junk to stand upright before God, pure and righteous in the sight of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We can have a fresh start, and God is just in doing that. But we have to receive it. We have to ask for it. Paul writes uh, this in Ephesians 2.8, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourself. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't have to be good enough to get it. It's a gift of God. In God's grace and his mercy, out of love, he made a way for us to experience life with him. But we have to accept that gift by faith. And if there's anyone here who has not yet taken that step, today can be the first day of your life as you invite Jesus in. Um, and accept the life that he came to give you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We thank you for your cross, for dying for us so that we could have life. And I pray for any who have come in here today, God, with heavy hearts or burdens, um, that they'll be assured by the depth of your love that you love them, that you're caring for them, that you'll take care of their needs, that you'll be with them throughout it, that you won't leave them, but that you'll walk with them through this.
And Lord, I also ask and uh, invite people to pray with me right now that if there's anyone here who's not received life in you, that you would help them to take that step right now. And uh, for those of you who would like to do that, just pray with me in your hearts. Uh, Lord Jesus, I accept what you've done for me on the cross. I need your life, that life that's really life. And I ask that you forgive me for all that's in my past, that you wash that away, that you purify my heart, and that you'll make me new in Christ. Give me new life. I invite you into my life. Help me to live as you lived. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.